Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Blaise Pascal was a famous 17th century inventor and mathematician. He created the first hydraulic press, uh, created the first syringe, created the first form of public transportation, and a number of other inventions are credited to Pascal. Maybe more importantly were contributions that he made in the arena of mathematics. And I would give those to you, but it'd probably confuse you and it'd be very boring and all those other things. But he was a genius of a man who came to Christ later in his life and, and at that point of time began to keep journals and write down his thoughts and began to apply even some of the theories of mathematics that he had worked out to his theology and his Christian life. Later on, his memoirs were published in a book titled Pensies, which if you know French, you know that is simply the word for thoughts. And so Blaise Pascal's Pensies presents what is sometimes called the great wager. Uh, This has been credited to Pascal how he worked out a theory of probability a statistical theory when it came to his theology, when it came to the afterlife. And Pascal's great wager was basically this, as he writes in his journal, that you and I face a choice in life whether or not to believe in God, whether or not to believe God exists. And when we do that, we enter into a wager. In fact, we have to. We have to make a choice as we go through life whether or not we're going to live as if God exists or whether or not we're not going to. But Pascal urges us to understand that when we do that, we are risking not one life against another. We're not risking just the delights and pleasures of 80 years spent living for God or the alternative of 80 years spent living for ourselves. What we're wagering really are 80 brief years in this life against the weight of an eternity of consequences for our choices. Pascal's great wager, he says then, any sensible, reasonable person would have to conclude that simply based on the risks and the consequences, he ought to live his life for God. Now, wait, uh, Pascal didn't devise this, this scheme or come up with this philosophy as some mode of evangelism. It was simply him, the mathematician, applying to his theology the things of, the war, uh, the, the, the things of his career that he lived in, just simply applying theories of probability to the way that he thought about God and the way that he thought about eternity. But it provides something of a parallel, if you will, to the way that Paul speaks to us in 1 Corinthians 15. Because Paul approaches the issue of the afterlife speaking to us in similar tones about potential consequences of our choices, potential risks that we take based on what we believe about the afterlife and most particularly about the resurrection. Beginning in verse 29, he asks a series of probing 
questions that have to do with our behavior in this Christian life in light of the life to come. And you can see it in verse 29. What do people mean, for example, by being baptized? Or verse 30, why are we in danger? Or down in verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking? And so you see he's probing and probing and probing this issue of what are the consequences? What are the risks Why do we behave the way we behave in light of what we believe about the future? He's challenging, you remember in this entire chapter, those who would suggest that the resurrection from the dead doesn't exist. In this context, there were those who were looking to something beyond the grave that was non-material. When they thought about the afterlife, it was just some sort of spiritual non-bodily, sort of non-material existence where you floated in an ethereal world. And Paul has been arguing that if you have such a view of the afterlife, then that would mean death still reigns. And if death still reigns, sin is not defeated. And if sin is not defeated then Christ died in vain. That has been his line of argument thus far. And so the whole chapter lays out before us as a grand defense, not only of the resurrection of Christ, but consequently of our own resurrection, of our own hope for a bodily resurrection from the grave after we die. And as we come to verse 29, Paul is saying that any other version of Christian theology, any other version of Christian eschatology makes no sense. In fact, it detrimentally impacts the personal choices that you make every day and the way you live your life. It impacts your pursuits. It impacts the acts of obedience that you ought to be rendering to the Lord. It impacts the risks that you ought to be taking for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he says that if, it, if we deny the resurrection, so many of the very things that we ought to be doing in the Christian life suddenly become inexplicable. No reason. No reason anymore for many of the risks that we would take, for many of the sacrifices we would make, they would make no sense. But as it stands, because of the resurrection, Paul suggests that we as Christians have great reason to follow the Lord. We have great reason to make these sacrifices. Because of the resurrection, we're willing, he says, to put many of the things that we believe, that we hold to, many of the things that we uh, 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 pursue, many of the things that we might cherish. We're willing, he says, to put those things on the line Because of what we believe will happen in the future. We're willing to to put things on the line, to risk the loss of so much in this life. We're willing to make great sacrifices. We're willing to do all that. This is Paul's wager. This is his suggestion to us. This is his calling to the risk of following Christ and the risk of serving Him based on the conviction of, That Christ has already been raised from the dead. And that that is a down payment. Or as he says earlier in the chapter. The first fruits of a promise to come for us. 
This is the way Paul spells all of this out in verse 29. Having, having outlined for us what is coming in verses 20 through 28, having outlined for us the resurrection with the kingdom and with all the glory, he, he shifts in verse 29 and says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Paul's presenting before us a number of acts of obedience. A number of risks that we ought to take. A number of sacrifices that we ought to make. All in light of the reality of the resurrection. And so he's really outlining for us consequences if we don't believe that. Consequences on Christian conduct that would be undermined if we didn't have a vigorous and resilient understanding of the resurrection. Four, as a matter of fact, four consequences of Christian conduct that are undermined if we deny the resurrection. And he begins front and center with simply baptism. That's his point in verse 29. And it comes... In a verse that's been subject to great abuse. Because Paul's statement about baptism in this verse has been superficially understood by so many to support a kind of baptism far from anything that Paul himself would have endorsed. He says in verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This verse has been used by a few groups throughout the history of the church to justify what is sometimes called vicarious baptism or substitutionary baptism, where you go through a ritual of sorts on behalf of someone else, particularly someone who has already died. That's the kind of superficial reading that people apply here, and it ought to be rejected for a number of reasons. First of all, historically, because such a practice has never been endorsed or embraced by the church for all of its history. There's no record of the church from its earliest days ever accepting a practice of vicarious or substitutionary baptism. In fact, from the earliest days, the only reference that you'll ever find to such a practice are only in condemnation of a few heretical groups, particularly Marcion and Serenthus, who taught that this verse means that we're to be baptized for friends and relatives who died, that somehow your baptism acquires or, or somehow merits salvation on their behalf. And like so many uh, cults and subgroups through the ages who have, who have dreamt up ways for us to save dead people, for us to somehow 
earn their way out of some purgatory or out of some holding system for us to somehow do something on their behalf. Like so many of these groups, these two men as well were condemned because of their ideas of proxy baptism or substitutionary baptism. Even today we have false religions like Mormonism who teach this same kind of silly stuff. We had a friend, Tara and I had a friend when we were in seminary who grew up her whole life in Utah with a Mormon family. And she gave testimony herself about how through her childhood she had been baptized numerous times on behalf of distant family members so that they somehow could obtain salvation by her good deeds. That's in fact why the Mormon church today has the world's best genealogical records. If you ever go to UCLA uh, or if you ever go to, to uh, 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 Utah, you'll find in Salt Lake City there the best genealogical records anywhere because they must keep them. They keep them in great detail because they are working their way back through their family lines, being baptized on behalf of their family members. But none of that has any basis in the history of the church or in the text. Because what Paul's teaching here would be no different than what he's taught everywhere else, what the Bible teaches everywhere else, that there is no substitutionary work, either through baptism or through anything else that you do that could ever benefit anyone around you. Nothing. There's no, there's no price you could pay. There's no sacrifice you could give. There's no amount of money that you could lay on the table. There's nothing that you could do that could ever stand in the place of any loved one or friend. Nothing. In fact, the Bible teaches there's only one act that has ever been accomplished that could ever take the place of any human being before God that could ever earn them anything. And that's the act of Christ. The scripture teaches it over and over again that Christ, by dying in our place on the cross, took our place under the wrath of God, suffered on our behalf, and fulfilled completely God's every demand. And because of that, we can go free. Having never, never having the burden again of ever having to offer anything that would have to please God for our eternal salvation. Because the penalty of wrath has been completely satisfied. So the whole idea that you could be baptized on behalf of someone else runs contrary to everything taught in Scripture. And that's really why we reject this passage out of hand, or reject that interpretation of this passage out of hand, not only historically, because the substitutionary baptism's never been adopt, adopted or embraced by the church, but scripturally, because it runs contrary to everything taught in the New Testament. The Bible is clear. That your salvation, my salvation, anyone who's ever saved is never a result of anything you do. Titus 3, 5, God saves us not because of works done in our righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we all memorize these verses early on in our Christian 
life. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Or you could, you could stick in there, not as a result of any work. There's nothing that you could do. No good deed that you could ever do that could add anything to your standing before God, not even baptism. It doesn't achieve anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't add anything to you or to anyone else. Any idea of a baptism which somehow conveys merit or grace or salvific work is a distortion from Scripture. And so if baptism cannot even add to your own salvation, it certainly can't add to anyone else's. If it doesn't accomplish anything spiritually, then what is it? What's it all about? Why why do we practice this? Why do we go through this? Why do we urge new believers to be baptized? That's because while baptism doesn't achieve anything on your behalf, it certainly declares something. It makes an important statement and declaration to the world. It's a public declaration of what you believe. A public declaration of of your faith. A declaration of what you have experienced and a declaration of what you will experience. It is a it's an important symbol about an important truth if you are a believer. It's a symbol, a symbolic way of representing the burial of an old life and the rising again of a new life. It's a picture, in other words, of the resurrection. When we go under the waters of baptism, we're giving a picture of our old life being buried, as it were, in the grave. And we come up out of the waters of baptism, we're giving a picture of a new life rising from the grave. That's what has taken place in our hearts and lives spiritually if we've received Christ, because we're new creatures in Christ. But just as importantly, it pictures what will take place when we die. We're giving a picture of our belief that one day we will rise again in new bodies because of Christ. So baptism is an important declaration of all that. And we might add an important act of obedience because the Lord commanded us to make disciples and then baptize them. Right? Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no reason to think that when Paul uses the word baptism here, that he somehow is using it outside of the normal sense that he has always used it, of the normal sense, it's always been understood historically within the church. And whatever struggles we have with understanding this verse are struggles that need to be made within this framework, theologically and historically. But we recognize that even with the clarity that comes from all of that, this still is a difficult verse to read and understand. In fact, one scholarly work I looked at this week 
documented nearly 40 interpretations. Number one. No, I'm just joking. I'm not going to give you all 40. But there are a lot of them. Let me say that. If we're going to navigate our way through this, we have to understand the key terms that Paul's using here. First of all, we've already begun with the word baptism, which we understood in the normal sense of baptism, the Christian act and ritual that we participate in as an expression of obedience and worship to God. And then there's the word dead, baptized on behalf of the dead. The word is used, the word dead is used, necron, by the way, is the word. It's used 13 times in 1 Corinthians 15. It's used really in every case, either of those who have died in Christ or of the state of being dead. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, same word there, necron, it's the concept of death. In other places, the term is used simply to refer to the dead in Christ being raised again. Here in verse 29, it appears to be referring not strictly to the concept, but to this second category, the dead as a group. Because Paul, you'll notice at the end of the verse, refers to the dead with the plural pronoun, referring to seemingly a group of people. But even with that, we should not think of this as all dead people, that somehow he has in mind unsaved dead people along with saved dead people. Somehow we're going to understand it that way and fulfill some requirement for our lost loved ones who've already passed on. We're going to be baptized on their behalf and bring salvation to them. Because Paul uses this always in this chapter, to speak about those who have died in Christ. The dead throughout the chapter are always used that way, and so naturally we would expect him to use the term similarly here. He's talking about being baptized on behalf of the dead in Christ. And that leads us really to the third key term in this phrase, which is the word on behalf. In many translations, it's simply the word for, the Greek word huper, which, like so many Greek prepositions, has a range of meanings depending on the context in which it's used. It can be used substitutionally, meaning in the place of someone. It can be used spatially, meaning over something. Or it can be used referentially, meaning about something or in reference to something. In fact, Paul uses it referentially a number of times in the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, referring always, when he uses it that way, to either an individual or a group of individuals, a group of people. And I believe that's the best way to understand it here. He's not talking about some substitutionary act. He's talking about an act in reference to Or an act, we might say, about something else. Paul seems to be speaking about baptism in reference to the dead in Christ. As with many cases in this chapter, that doesn't mean only the people who have already died before the Corinthians received this letter. 
It refers to all those who will die in Christ. Past, present, and future. He's talking about the dead in Christ as a whole. All those who will be raised again when Christ returns. And so therefore, it would refer refer even to those that Paul is writing to. It would refer even to their death and to their part in the group who is recognized as dead in Christ. And so Paul's not thinking about being baptized in the place of someone else. He seems to have in mind a baptism in reference to our own death. He seems to have in mind a picture given in our baptism of our death and resurrection. He's asking, in other words, if there's no resurrection, why in the world do we participate in a ritual that symbolizes resurrection? If there's no resurrection, why in the world do we do this this symbolic act that references the one day resurrection that we will all take place in? This, by the way, was the interpretation of all the Greek fathers. All the church fathers who came from the Greek-speaking world all appear to have understood Paul using this word huper to be a reference to our own place among the dead and among those who will rise again. For example, Theodoret, one of the Greek fathers, comments on this verse saying, the baptized person, he is saying, is buried with the Lord so that having shared death, they may also become sharers in the resurrection. But if the body is dead and does not rise, Why on earth are they baptized? There you understand what Paul's getting at. He's questioning why in the world would we behave in this way? Why in the world would we even have this practice? Why in the world would the church have ever developed this if there is no resurrection of the dead? Or why, why in the world, I should say, would Christ command this? So one of the things that would make no sense, he says, if there was no resurrection, if we deny the resurrection, one of the acts of obedience that we wouldn't even bother following through would be at the very beginning, the act of baptism. It would be senseless. But that's not the only thing that would be lost because Paul also mentions sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. Not only is obedience and baptism jeopardized, but when, but any obedience, I should say, that requires sacrifice is undermined when there is no hope of the resurrection. Paul says it in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, look, what is it? What's the point in service to others to make any kind of sacrifice if there's nothing beyond the grave? What's the point in Christian service which demands of you to lay down your personal schedules, your personal interests, your personal luxuries, your personal comforts? What's the point in you risking 
any of that stuff if the dead are not raised? What's the point in you pouring over and over and over again into people who sometimes are not even responding, who sometimes are hardening their hearts against the Lord, who sometimes are rejecting your counsel, who are rejecting the gospel, who are turning away from Christ? What's the point to go through it over and over and over again if there's no resurrection? You say, well, pastor, I mean, I just do it because it's joyous, it's fun. Well, I wish I could live in your world. <laughs> I wish I could say that Christian service is always fun and giddy. But let me tell you, after just a few years of experiencing it myself, if that's what you're going on, if it's all about the pep rally and the feel-good moments for you, you will not get very far in ministry. Because what God demands in ministry is conformity to His own Son. And let me tell you, the life of Christ in ministering to others was one of rejection, it was one of heartache, it was one of sacrifice, it was one of blood, it was one of the cross. And who are you to think that somehow in your service to God that you ought to be exempt from such consequences? If you ever want to be a useful tool of the Lord, you have to understand that it involves a pounding out and a sharpening of yourself on an anvil of trials. You have to know something of the rejection of Christ. You have to know something of the kind of sacrifice that he made and even the apostles made. And Paul's saying, look, if, if, if there was nothing beyond the grave, then the kind of rewards that would come in this life only, they wouldn't be worth the sacrifice. They wouldn't be worth the kind of risk that Christian ministry requires. Paul recounts even here one of his own personal trials. He says in verse 32 that he was subjected to wild beasts in Ephesus. People struggle with this because they say, well, it's not recorded anywhere in the book of Acts. That somehow, if it's not there, that it can't be literal. And so they run away with all sorts of figurative interpretations. I don't see any reason to do that. Any more than in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul gives a whole catalog of difficulties and hardships and trials that came his way. We find that several of them are never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And yet we understand them all to be the literal trials and sacrifices of the Apostle Paul's life. He had many, more than we could probably document, more than the biblical writers could probably document. In the book of Acts or anyone, anywhere else. Paul had many trials and sacrifices. In fact he says in 2 Corinthians 1. We know not want you to be unaware brethren. Of our affliction which came to us in Asia. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So that we despaired even of life. Indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves. In order that we should not trust in ourselves. But in God. Who raises the dead. 
You want to know something? If you go very far in Christian ministry, if you really are intent on doing work meaningful in God's kingdom and in eternity, then one of the plans that God has laid out for you is to teach you not to trust in yourself, in your resources, in this life, or any of the treasures of this world, but to trust only in God who raises the dead. God is in the process of bringing you to an eschatological focus. God is in the process of making you sick of this life, sick of this world, tired of the battle with sin, and weary from all the obstacles to his kingdom. God is in the process of making you in love with his return, enamored with, with, with the hope of the glory that awaits us, and full in your mind of the resurrection one day. I believe that's what Paul's really getting at here when he talks about even his own sacrifice, even his own struggles, his own view of the resurrection that led him to these kinds of sacrifices. He says in verse 31, I die daily. You know, that's very similar. If you flip over to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 4, that's very similar to what he says in that passage about his service and his sacrifice. You'll notice he says in verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's a reference to himself. He he views himself as nothing but a, a, a cheap jar of clay that in most cases would be looked at as nothing better than to be thrown out. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. We are all we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh, so that death works in us, but life in you. Paul's saying, Look, I live the resurrection every day. I live the death of Christ every day. And as I live that out, what I'm seeing more and more as I step up to the plate, as I own the sacrifices, as I go through what he calls perplexity and affliction and persecution and being always struck down, what I find is that I die every day, but through that, the life of Christ is being manifested in me. In fact, he goes on. He says, down in verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was written, I believe, so I spoke. We also believe, and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Listen, you cannot have the perspective of verse 15 if you don't have the perspective of verse 14. You cannot be someone who is 
completely sold out to seeing the grace of God extending to more and more people who is completely sold out to seeing thanksgiving for God increasing among all people. You cannot, cannot, cannot be committed to that if you don't have rock solid in your heart and mind the perspective that God will raise you up one day. In fact, Paul says, look, we don't lose heart. Verse 16, though our outward self is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says we're looking. We're looking. But what we're looking at you can't see right now. What our eyes are fixed on you can't see. Paul Paul doesn't open up the paper and look at his stock account every day. He doesn't open up the 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 the, the email to find out where he falls on the pecking order of his uh, career. He doesn't open up to see what size house he could. He wouldn't spend his days looking uh, over how he can increase his wealth or his abundance or all these other things. He doesn't look at the things which you can see. And because of that, he had his eyes firmly fixed on what you can't see. And because of that, he gave his heart and his life over to a level of ministry that has been almost unmatched in all the history of the church. And the secret was that. A fixed gaze on what is invisible. A fixed gaze on what cannot be seen. So Paul says, you undermine the resurrection, you lose all that. No more sacrifice. No one would be willing to do it. Not anymore. Not the way Christ did it. Not the way Paul did it. If there's no glory to be revealed in us, if there's no resurrection, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 15, you might as well eat, drink, be merry. Because tomorrow you die. Just go ahead and live for this world. Go ahead and live for this life. Which is really the third example of how obedience is undermined. He says your purity is undermined. Not only is the first step of obedience undermined. Not only is sacrificial service to Christ undermined. But purity is undermined. I mean, Why deny yourself all the fleeting pleasures in this life if this life is all there is? You may know that those pleasures are shallow. You may know that they are short-lived. But if that's all you have, you will be drawn to them. You will maintain, you will not maintain, I should say, any standard of purity to speak of if you do not have a vision of heavenly glory. 1 John 3, 2 speaks about this hope in a future resurrection when we see Christ face to face. And it says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself 
just as Christ is pure. You must not only put off a fixation with the present worldly allurements and pastimes, you have to replace those desires with a fixation on future glory. I used to have an English professor who would, um, in front of class, try to ridicule me. And one time I remember she was commenting on a paper I wrote and she said, you know, Mr. Kohler, you, you, you are so heavenly minded. You are of no earthly good. I wish I had been a little more quick to respond and tell her she was too earthly minded to be of any heavenly good. Because that's the way we are, right? That's the way we are. And, and what he's telling us here is the failure to continually be renewing our minds in this way will result in a mind polluted by worldly amusements and worldly attractions. And you want to know how you get drawn into that? You want to know how you get to the place where you become so consumed with this life that you become so consumed with this world, you become so consumed with what you see that you lose sight of what is unseen and you lose sight of the resurrection and you forfeit all that is awaiting you out there. You want to know how that happens? Well, Paul tells you. He tells you in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He says very simply, It is the company you keep, the surroundings in which you place yourself, what you fill your ears and your mind and your time with. It's inevitable. You spend time around people who have a low view of God, a low view of the afterlife, a low view of the resurrection. You spend time with those people, and what he says is it's going to affect you. Now, in this particular case, Paul had in mind those who had taught bad doctrine. They're the ones who are the primary influence on these Christians, these Corinthians. But really, the principle is true in any, in any fashion. Bad company, bad company fills your mind with bad thinking. And bad thinking leads to bad choices. And bad choices have bad consequences for eternity. On the flip side, Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise will be wise while the companion of fools will suffer harm. When I became a Christian, I didn't necessarily have one person who discipled me. I found it difficult in my early churches to find that person, but one thing I understood was this principle. If I was going to grow in Christ, I needed to spend time with the godliest people I knew. And so I was that, you know... uh, messy-haired, 
you know, unkempt little kid who was badgering people all the time to come to their house, to hang out with them, to ride around with them in the car, to do whatever I could to hang out with the godliest people I knew because I understood that if my mind is going to be refined and my thinking is going to be grown, if I'm going to be able to understand how the Christian life has worked out, I'm going to have to hear it and see it on a regular, continual basis. Corinthians unfortunately, weren't in that mindset. They had gotten with a group of people who sounded spiritual. But the deception was apparent. They were denying the resurrection. And Paul saying, it will have consequences. It will have consequences. There's one more area of obedience that is undermined if you deny the resurrection. And that's evangelism. It's evangelism. When our minds are muddied up about our own eternal destiny, the inevitable result is we stop caring about the eternity of others. You want to have a gauge in your life about where your understanding of the resurrection is? When's the last time you were brokenhearted about someone lost? When's the last time you really thought about eternity for them? You want to know whether or not your mind is consumed where it needs to be consumed? Just think about that. Because this is what Paul points them to in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Wake up from all your worldliness. Wake up from all of your material-mindedness. Wake up from all of your low view of the resurrection. Wake up from your looking at things that are visible. Wake up, he says. You need to come out of your drunken stupor because I'm saying something that ought to shame you. The fact that people all around you don't have the knowledge of God and you no longer care. That your life is so consumed with the here and now that you no longer are ashamed at your own lack of evangelism. It ought to be a regular reflection in your life to ask yourself, when was the last time that I shared the gospel with anyone? When was the last time I met an unbeliever in any course of life and presented the gospel to them. We are out there day after day with them all the time. And our temptation maybe because we are being corrupted by their own good morals is instead of becoming the eternal influence that we're supposed to be, we're allowing them to become the temporal influence on us. That we are allowing them to drag us down To where all we're concerned about anymore is what takes place today and tomorrow or in our retirement or whatever it might be. Paul says shame. Shame. If that's what's happened to your thinking. You should hide your face because of your lack of concern for those without Christ. We need to reorient our thinking. 
We need to check our eschatology. We need to find out if we've been corrupted. We need to be asking ourselves again, do I believe this resurrection? And if I do, what kind of risks should I take? What kind of sacrifice should I make? What kind of wager should I bet on with the few days that I have and the eternity that I have to gain? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Our Father, we have to confess the burden of our hearts. To hear your word spoken. So much to our shame. I pray that you would give us. Deep and resilient understandings of the resurrection. That you would help guard our hearts from being corrupted. Help us to think again deeply. And sincerely. And daily. About the resurrection. And I pray that it would transform our obedience. I pray that it would lead us to the life of sacrifice and to the necessary risks that such of you would demand. Make us like our Savior, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sits now at the right hand of the Father. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.